Sky News is reporting the debris found in the search for Titan was a landing frame and a rear cover. Oh, no. What does that mean, uh, Aaron, if that is the case? If it's the rear cover, then it was a catastrophic implosion. So if it imploded, it pushed that cap off. That's how that happens. Wow. Jesus Christ. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SCS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. But today we turn our attention to a different sort of mystery. Uh, Of course, this is the frantic search for the missing submersible called Titan, uh, which is carrying five passengers to the Titanic wreckage site. Uh, That search now in desperation mode as oxygen uh, has reportedly run out, if those estimations are correct, and we're going to talk to the panel about it. Um, Can the five passengers aboard still be alive? Uh, There are questions regarding that at this hour as well. Um, I'm going to get us going uh, here. Best guest, and we're going to have kind of a rotating slew of guests today. As you see, Dr. M has rejoined us from yesterday, so we appreciate him coming back. Uh, the man in the red button-down shirt, there's two of them, but the one, uh, Dr. Stephen Wood, uh, after completing his master's degree in ocean engineering at the University of Miami, uh, where he developed an architecture of an expert system for oceanographic mooring design, uh, Dr. Stephen Wood uh, worked as a marine research specialist at the University of Rhode Island in physical oceanography. He now teaches at the Florida Institute of Technology, specializing in in hydroacoustics, ocean engineering design, bottom line is this guy knows everything you need to know about the ocean. And then welcoming back uh, today, Butch Hendrick. He is president and founder of Lifeguard System. He has been training water rescue and dive teams, how to find submerged bodies and evidence for more than 50 years in more than 15 countries. Dr. Salvatore McCurgliano, uh, the other red shirt, is uh, an associate professor of history at Campbell University in North Carolina, and he is an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, He holds a Bachelor of Science in Marine Transportation and also knows quite a bit about the ocean, which he says is always looking for a way to kill you. So uh, we will get back to him. And then Aaron Amick. Aaron, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he is a 20-year U.S. Navy submarine sonar man. He uh, retired in 2010 and has worked as a subject matter expert for military projects ever since. Aaron is the founder of Subbrief LLC and co-host of the Subbrief YouTube channel. Subbrief YouTube channel, uh, and more information is available on his website. Uh, thank you uh, to one and all. We. Um, are getting breaking news at this hour, at this moment, that a debris field has been located not far from the Titanic wreck. Uh, Butch Hendrick, to you first, your uh, recovery guy. Uh, what does this tell you? Uh, if anything, it sounds a little somber, but uh, you're remaining optimistic. I remain optimistic, yes. But obviously, there is so much debris in that area around that Titanic and until they can discover or show that it is a portion of debris that belongs to the submersible we're looking for, it's debris field. The positive side of that is they're in the active area. And for me, that says at least we've got something on the bottom that's able to see 
or take sonar images and bring it back, they have found something. Um, to you, Dr. McCurgliano, um, news of this debris field, I'm not even sure if you have heard about this yet. Uh, it's just breaking right now. Uh, what is your take? What do you make of it? Well, obviously, they're going to investigate anything, any evidence that they can find. I mean, they've been doing a full-scale search, surface and subsurface. And as is rightly said, there's a lot of junk in the ocean, and, and you're going to have to ascertain what it is, and even locating the debris field until you can pick it up and take a look at it and determine that it potentially came from Titan. Uh, you just have to keep up with the rescue operations right. until you reach the limit when nobody could potentially survive. So they'll investigate that, but just be sure that the, the remaining parts of the search is still ongoing. Uh, Dr. Wood, uh, how much debris is in the ocean? Um, what is your, what is your, uh, what is your gut telling you? What's your gut telling you right now um, about the current situation? Okay, uh, surrounding the Titanic, there's, as, you, as you know, there's debris all over the place. And we've been going there, leaving trash there for a while uh, since we found it back in, uh, in 1985. Um, the key thing is, is once they have, uh, they, they have the remotely operated vehicles, the Victor 6000 is down, and another one, I'm not sure what the other one was, uh, is. But um, they have cameras on it, and so... If they get close to that debris, they can tell whether or not that has been laid uh, in last couple of weeks or was it last year. And so realistically, within their briefing, I gather they're, they're going to have a briefing at 3 o'clock. They will know whether or not that is the submarine or not, um, just by looking from the cameras of the remotely operated vehicles. Uh, Leanne Wright, breaking news, Josh Benson from WFLA, Debris Field has been found. Josh is a good friend of mine. I work with him in Tucson, and uh, Leanne, I can tell you right now, Josh Benson wishes he had the panel I had right now. Uh, so stop watching FLA and start watching guys who actually know what they're talking about. I love <laughs> Josh Benson, but he knows nothing. Um, sorry about that. I had, to, I had to give a little jab there. Um, to you um, – Aaron, I just wanted to double check, so I was going to call you Andy for a second. We got so many people rolling. <laughs> we'll be the in first. <laughs> but uh, Aaron, thank you for uh, being here. I really appreciate it. Tell me, um, what is your gut right now? You have a YouTube channel that's very successful. You talk about submersibles and submarines on a, almost a daily basis. Um, what what kind of uh, story has this been for you? What kind of impact has this had for you? Uh, it's really been kind of shocking. I was surprised actually when I first heard of this event and it, uh, quickly spiraled into like concern for me. I have been on the more negative side of this story. I think from the very beginning, just after I learned uh, about the Titans construction and the systems they had on board and, uh, the methods that they were using and some of the safety systems that just weren't on board, uh, I, I felt that this vehicle wasn't designed to survive a casualty to be blunt. Um, and something clearly has happened there. So I've been a little bit more negative than most people, uh, but I do want to, you know, try and project the positive image as possible until until we know for sure what really happened. And uh, we have another guest joining us, John Mixon, coming to us from uh, Amman, Jordan, I believe. Uh, John, are you hearing us okay? Yeah, sure do. Good evening. Uh, great to have you. So, John, if I have it correct, you're a commercial pilot, but you've also authored operational risk management uh, manuals, basically for the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, and uh, State Department. Am I right about that? 
Uh, yeah, I'm retired uh, Coast Guard. I spent 22 years as a uh, aviator with the United States Coast Guard, flying both fixed wing and rotary wing. Uh, prior to that, I was a search uh, search and rescue mission coordinator, and then went on to flight school and flew uh, fixed wing and rotary wing, both uh, international, domestic, short range, long range, uh, and then as well as migrant interdiction, drug interdiction uh, in the Caribbean, as well as uh, Central and South America. Yeah. So you you basically you've done it all. Um, and uh, we're just getting word, and uh, we have obviously an amazing panel here today. So uh, we're just getting word, and I don't know how fast uh, news travels to Amon Jordan about a debris field that was just found. Have, have you heard about this? No, I actually just walked in. And, uh, yeah. So they just, just in the last five, ten minutes, a debris field was reported to be found uh, near the site of the Titanic. What's your gut tell you hearing that news? Uh, well, my first First question is a debris field. Have they confirmed what kind of debris it is? Um, that a debris field is a pretty vague statement, uh, and especially finding one right in that area right now. Because if there was a debris field um, by this time, it's likely drifted outside of the uh, the original um, area where something would have happened initially. So I. I'd like to know more about those details of the, the definition of the debris field. Are they, are they finding pieces that they've confirmed to the vessel or they've just found debris? Because in the uh, search and rescue business, you find debris all the time. Um, it'll be reported by an asset on scene as debris, typically an aviation asset, but they can't confirm what that is. So they'll, they'll call in a debris field, um, not knowing or being able to ascertain specifics, and then they'll get a surface asset on scene to confirm what that debris field is. And, in fact, entail. And that's what's so interesting about having these guys on the panel right now, because everyone in the world is reading Debris Field, and right away they're saying these guys are dead, this thing imploded. Um, but you can hear Butch and, and uh, John and others saying, you know, hold, hold off a minute, because there is, uh, you know, plenty of possibilities that this Debris Field could be um, something else. Um Captain Jamie Frederick of the 1st Coast Guard District, uh, he's basically the spokesperson for the Coast Guard. Uh, he came out and said that this is still a search and rescue mission uh, and said and urged that we need to have hope. Um, back to you, John, since you are former Coast Guard. Um, are you holding on to hope at this point? Yeah, absolutely. And first and foremost, the fact that the uh, so the captain there at the uh, first Coast Guard district, they are the uh, they're the SMC of the SAR mission coordinator. So they're in charge of this this entire investigation and search. Um, and they will be the ones at, to ultimately make the decision whether this is no longer a search and rescue case. And as long as they are considering the search and rescue case, their anticipation is there are survivors and they need to be found. The way that they, I would I would imagine the the thought process behind it is right now is you have two scenarios. You have one scenario where the vessel uh, is disabled and uh, has no uh, electrical capability, but is on the surface, and that's a challenging object. This is not a it's a challenging task. This is not a large object. Um, so even a surface search from the air for an object this size, and and I have. I've detected possible <laughs> subs in the size range. It is a very, very challenging thing to find. Um, so the hope is, is that I can assure you that the hope of the aviators and the Coast Guardsmen, uh, cuttermen that are out there patrolling, they're hoping this thing's on the surface because that means there's hope. 
and uh, they just need to be pounded. But it can be challenging to find a, tar- a target, especially depending on the sea conditions of this size, visually and, and radar means. Now, secondarily to that, that that's the, that's the that's the positive side of it. The negative side of this thing is if this is a subsurface event. Uh, if it's a subsurface event, uh, you know, I don't know enough about the vessel to make specifics, but it's been reported that at this point the oxygen would have been depleted. So um, that would be a grim thing. But right now, the most important thing is the SAR mission coordinator is designating this still as a search and rescue mission, which means he anticipates the uh, possibility of survivors. And uh, the chief technical officer has put this up. The United States Coast Guard confirms discovery of a debris field near the Titanic and are further investigating. Experts on surviving the survivors say debris is not uncommon, not confirmed that this is the vessel. Next media briefing, 3 p.m. Eastern time today. Uh, For parity and fairness, we'll just go around the horn here. Uh, Back to you, Dr. Stephen Wood from uh, the Florida Institute of Technology. So, uh, the, the critical issue, obviously, is oxygen. Um, it is now past this 96-hour mark. Um, however, that could be an imprecise measure. Uh, how do you read into this? Uh, do you believe that they have fully depleted their oxygen levels at this point? It really comes down to what measures they took the moment they realized they were in trouble. If they realize they're in trouble, then they uh, go to as best you can to a low oxygen usage, and uh, which case you could extend that 96 hours out. We're making the assumption that they had a full uh, allotment of air uh, for the 96, uh, but in which case, if they're very careful, um, they could be extended out. And so we are at the margin right now. Uh, so uh, we have to, as they say, knock on wood to get lucky uh, to make sure that our assets are down there. It's great that they have the ROVs down there because if they actually do find the vehicle and it is entangled in the wreck, then they can cut it loose immediately because they're at a break-even point right now to be able to make it. There's a possibility that they are alive. So, yes, we have to go to the ditch effort to go and do the search. And, Dr. Wood, did I hear you correctly? Did you say that the ROV can cut loose the uh, Titan if, if it is caught? If they have the Victor 6000 down there, it has all types of uh, cutting instruments, depending if they put it in there, which I'm sure they did. Uh, because uh, you need to have a deep-sea uh, remotely operated vehicle with the tools to be able to free them. Before they even put it in the water, they're going to have cutting um, utensils, whether or not they're the scissors type or saws. Uh, but those vehicles, you know, they're 5 to $10 million a piece, and uh, they're made for work. And so they would be able to free it if it was, as I say, entangled in a shipwreck. And uh, Butch, you have uh, 50 years experience, uh, the most experience on the panel in terms of rescuing people. Um, what does your gut tell you right now? I think yesterday you, you said you believed it got entangled. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, where are they leading you today? I'm still going with the concept that I believe it got itself entangled in part of the debris or possibly with the current got caught and trapped up underneath a piece somewhere. And Dr. Wood described when they're going to when they put that submersible recovery unit in the water, they made sure I can't imagine. I shouldn't say they did. I can't imagine they did not make sure that the cutting tools were in place and ready to go to work if they discovered. They're not going to bring that unit back up to refit it to send it back down. And 
some of those tools, the cutting tools, can literally cut straight through a two-inch piece of steel, just quietly crushing it and just severing it. So they've got the best gear out there. What I would like to hit on is the 96-hour air supply, oxygen supply, was never tested. It's a mathematical process that they put together. They never tested it. And they certainly never tested it with five individuals. It was the, all the testing that was done was in 500 feet or less. We don't know. And from the beginning, I said we could have 80, 80 hours, but they might have 120 hours. We don't, we don't mm-hmm. have a real number. So when you start looking at what the Coast Guard is doing, I believe that they're looking at it saying there's still the potential. And they have such a massive unified force there. Why would they stop the concept of possible rescue? But once it goes to the recovery mode, a whole lot of people are going to be going, morale comes down, energy comes down, and people are kind of like, all right, let's go home. But this still has a massive potential to be found not necessarily recovered, but found. Once they find it, the game's going to change some. And then you, you just heard that from uh, a guy that has more experience than just about anyone in uh, underwater <laughs> rescue and recovery. This is, this is an operation so far above anything that I have actually done. We've recovered bodies in 250, 280 feet of water, side scan sonar. I have used remote control vehicle to attach to a body and bring it back to the surface. But this is out of the game of any of us. We're, we're using what we know, and that's what the Coast Guard and Navy, et cetera, what they know. And every other minute, they're probably learning a new piece that has to go in the box, be deciphered, and put back into the game. That's how I see the game playing. And our Coast Guard and the Canadians have just nonstop been positive, kept morale high. The, the Admiral, when he talks, he sits there and goes, these guys are on their game. They're not giving out. And I'm very positive about the whole process. I think it's been great, and except for the, the people who built the thing. And that's why, and that's why, but we'll get to that too. But that's why Butch survived two uh, harrowing encounters with the deep sea, which he told us about. Dr. McCurgliano, to you, um, as Butch alluded to, this was an imprecise approximation to begin with, these oxygen levels. Uh, and it is being reported that it could be extended if passengers, passengers have taken measures to conserve breathable air. Um, what do you think? is happening in terms of the oxygen levels the headline everywhere right now is it has run out is that the case do you think well i I mean your guests are exactly right we don't know what this system's capable of because of it not being tested we're also assuming that five people are alive if this is an accident there could be people who have been injured or hurt or killed actually and then you're changing the the parameters if you've lost power on board this submersible and you're at the bottom you know, air may not be the issue. Cold is going to be the issue and it's going to be hypothermia coming in. That's the issue. I do want to raise one issue that I would assume, and I haven't heard this answered by the Coast Guard yet, that as soon as they got an ROV on site, their very first site they would look is the Titanic. They would put an ROV on the Titanic immediately 
and understand the Titanic is a collapsed building. It is a dangerous site to be around. You touch it and it starts coming apart on you. And if this submersible got into Titanic, close to Titanic, it could be buried under it, could be impaled in it. That is a dangerous, dangerous site to be around. That you know, If you've seen just images of Titanic over the years, you've seen how it's collapsed, how it's different than it was when Bob Ballard found it back in the 80s. Uh, this is really different. And so one of the things I think the ROVs would be doing is going millimeter by millimeter over the wreck right now, trying to see if there's any change in it to see if they can find a, a, a trace of that submersible. In a, in, a, in a search and rescue, you go to the site where you expect the people to be, you figure out the best site, and you work your way out around it. And if you look at the track lines that have been done with that, that's what you see. You see those track lines, they're mowing the, mowing the grass going over and over the site, you got to keep going over the same sites, but then you can begin to expand out and you don't do it in a circular me me method. You got to use the current because you're sitting there in the Gulf Stream and the Gulf Stream will throw <laughs> you. And so this, this is, again, I can't talk about how dangerous this site is. And uh, to me, the, the hubris in some ways of, of, of this company and operating a submersible at this level in this depth without a lot of protection, a lot of just, you know, you know what Aaron talked about fifty old uh, white guys checking it out and being able to see it is 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 a, a big problem for me. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, no beacon or anything aboard. Uh, Kelly K, look at this already getting uh, the fan following. Sal, love Sal, great combo yesterday. Nice to see Butch and Sal back. Sal back. Butch, yeah, welcome back to STS Nation. I told you we've got a great uh, fan base here with STS Nation. Uh, Aaron, uh, you're one of the few people I think that's actually been inside a submarine um what's it like uh inside a sub uh at the depths of the sea well it's uh it's very interesting it's like literally living inside of a machine because you are and you serve the machine and the machine keeps you alive and it's a symbiotic relationship there that you know it works both ways uh it's it's a uh, very taxing mentally i'd probably start with that description is you really have to be um focused to operate long term these submarines, you know, myself, we would deploy for, you know, months at a time. And so you need to, you know, know, know your routines, know, know your checklist. Uh, if something goes wrong, know your immediate actions for not just your job, but the job next to you or in your same department. Um, so it's very uh, mentally trying and it's not for everybody. That's for sure. Um, so that's kind of what the mentality of it is like. Physically, it's not that demanding. You don't move around a lot in a submarine because there's not a lot of space for it. Uh, but that is kind of taxing in and of itself in that if you have any sense of claustrophobia as a, as a, um, as a fear, you wouldn't want to be in one, especially one of this size that we're talking about today. I can't imagine the five people being trapped down there for this long. Even my experience 20 years on submarines, I would not want to be in that capsule for more than 10 or 12 hours. And... Uh how long would, would you deploy for in a submarine? How, how long is the longest time that you would be in there? Well, that's not, that's classified. Uh, <laughs> well, well, my, my submerged time is classified. Uh, probably, well, the normal deployments were, uh, you know, three, three to six months, depending on if we were going to the Med or the Russia. Um, and then a lot of drug ops, a lot of uh, routine. Uh, I was a mostly an Atlantic coast sailor. So we did a lot of ops down around in the Caribbean. So I would say, uh, anywhere from one month to three months was the common one. And then the deployments were the longer six-month ones. Hmm. Uh, John, back to you in Amman, Jordan there, uh, probably near the Red Sea. Um, so this, uh, we talked about a little bit, the Coast Guard uh, this morning, uh, Thursday, stateside, announced that this undersea robot was deployed by a Canadian ship, had reached the sea floor 
Um, can you give us an idea? How does that all work? You were in the Coast Guard. I mean, how complicated a process is this to get this robot down there? How do they even um, control it? Is it literally through joysticks from uh, above sea? How does it all work? Well, see, that's the challenge for the Coast Guard is we don't have any of those capabilities whatsoever. Uh, we rely on other agencies, uh, either other agencies or uh, commercial um, commercial salvage to assist us in any of that stuff. So that's where the SAR mission coordinator will delegate that uh, those things out, something like that. So Coast Guard in this particular case is very, very dependent upon other agencies to determine those things because it's just not 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 in our expertise. Our expertise is, is surface search. Um, and coordination. Um, that's the other kind of key thing. So our, our technical expertise is the surface search. And then our organizational expertise is bringing all these assets and entities together to affect a, a comprehensive rescue. So I actually, I, I wouldn't know on that, but what I would expand on is what they mentioned earlier when you talking about mowing the grass and, uh, and accounting for um, drift. Uh, so drift is a huge thing. And that's why I don't think if they did find a debris field, that's right near the Titanic's location, I would tend to think this isn't a debris field from the vessel we're looking for um, because a debris field is going to be completely sub subject to drift and um, both sea current as well as, well as wave current, uh, wind current. So that's why I'm, I'm pretty leery on the, on the whole debris field thing right now. Uh, Michelle Pretorius, she watches us from South Africa. Such a sad story. Thank you once again for the best guest, but I want to remind you what Butch and the others have said, there's a lot of debris in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, it might not be the, de the, the debris field. And so Butch, uh, with years, decades of experience, is holding out hope. Butch, do you, do you want? Yeah, I think part of the thing, if you look at the, the, the Titanic, as we said, when Bob Ballard and Emery Kristoff did discover it, it's not all in one piece. It's a stream of a debris field in itself. There's a hull, there's a debris field, there's a stern, they're giant pieces with parts all over. So it's not like, well, here's a boat. We think of the boat. It could be a thousand foot long. It could be a hundred foot long, but this is a stream of them. So if it was 500 foot, it's taken up 12, 1400 foot of length minimum. And when you think of debris and garbage, if you've ever gone to Jakarta, Indonesia, and just come off the shoreline and gone out towards Sipadan while it was still part of the plow, Simple enough, the debris field on the surface alone is two and a half miles by a mile with nothing but solid garbage floating. And the, the bottom is ridiculous. They have to go on the beaches and rake the garbage off in the morning so it goes back on the, into the outgoing current to be ready for the next debris field coming in tomorrow. So a lot of people have never seen what debris means. <laughs> it's, it's a whole different world out here. And when you start looking at making operational recoveries, looking for an airplane off of Singapore, the garbage that we had to dive through was a bigger problem than finding the object. We're just being able to get it on and off the surface. Sorry. No, not at all. You're, you're not going to find better guests anywhere right now. I can guarantee you that. Dr. Stephen Wood, uh, you wanted to chime in there? Uh, yes. Uh, the key thing uh, when you talk about the debris field, they lost communication one hour and 45 minutes into the dive. It's typically two hours to get to the bottom. So if there was a, uh, an incident where they had an implosion or whatever, they're right near the bottom. 
So the, the refield, if it is happening uh, where they lost communication, is going to be in a very concise area. Now, if it happened way up top, then it refield, you're right. It's over miles, but it went off an hour and 45 minutes. They lost communication, which probably happened somewhere in the next 15 minutes. So the chances are high that it's at the bottom. Uh, and when you look at it, it's, uh, chances are it's not involved in a uh, entanglement because it usually takes a while for them to be able to even find the shipwreck. And they have it, the protocols every 15 minutes to communicate. And within 15 minutes, it's doubtful that they will have even found uh, the Titanic in their original search. So something happened at that location. That debris field is probably, um, well, they'll know with the remotely operated vehicle because most debris fields, if it's older than just a few days, is going to have stuff growing on it or stuff landing on it. So if, so if it's a nice, fresh debris field, and they'll know that with the remotely operated vehicle with the cameras on it, they're high resolution, they'll be able to see exactly whether that, that is a true debris field or not. In which case, within by three o'clock, we will know whether or not for sure uh, it is something old debris field, which cameras will show it, or something brand new. But the whole thing happened very, very close to the bottom. Yes. So it's only whether or not they were able to, in that amount of time, release their drop weights and shoot to the surface. Then the Coast Guard has a perfect opportunity to hopefully find it on a surface. Chances are against that. And that's why we really still need to uh, focus on finding it. Because if all of a sudden they lost all electricity for whatever reason and they're on the bottom, then we need to get to them immediately. But chances are against the entanglement um, because it happened so close to the bottom when they were going down. That's my two cents. So, Dr. Wood, if I if I understood you correctly, you you don't think it was entangled. So, do you do you have a theory about what possibly went wrong here? There's so many things on these price. When I went down uh, Johnson Ceiling to uh, submersible a number of years back, you know, they went through all the detailed protocols and things to uh, what to do, what not to do. And I don't remember if that system had a uh, beacon on it. If we did, I don't remember that. And that's now a couple of years back. Um, most of the research ones, you know, all the scientists understand they're taking a risk going on it. They try to do the best. They don't have backup. Uh, submersibles to go this they typically don't have a backup remotely operated vehicle you're taking a chance in some of these things but a scientist realizes that this company had at least three of their vehicles uh, that they use so why didn't they have uh, at least one of the other ones available uh, in case the first one breaks down i mean uh that is just right I mean, I just find that confusing. Also, I mean, if you're a, um, people talk about the currents in the area. Well, if you're a skydiver, when I went skydiving, you came up to the top and you threw down your uh, marker to see which way your uh, currents are going. And then you have a good idea of where you're going to put your ship to go down to uh, put your submersible down. Uh, nobody, and I saw in, in any of this, did I see anybody put down uh, current meters to see what are the velocities of the ocean at that location. It's only when the, the French ship came back with the Victor 6000, they're the only ones I have ever seen in this group that have the uh, util you know, utensils or instrumentation to actually go and measure what the currents are. We're making guesses, except for the surface currents, 
we're making guesses of which way the currents would be at the bottom. Things change. Uh, when we have it uh, say, oh, there's two currents come together in uh, at depth, so it could go off to the south, southwest-ish uh, is what they say. But is that true? Things change uh, depending on weather, years, currents, um, in which case somebody, if they wanted to follow a debris field, they need to lower down what is your currents at that depth. Because uh, they might have gone north, they might have gone south. And that's why we would put down a uh, Doppler velocity logger to be able to get the velocities at every meter going down to the very bottom. And then I would know which way it went. If it, it's if we lost it at 1,000 meters, it went this way. If we lost it at 2,000 meters, it went that way. If it's at the bottom, what are the currents at the bottom? Yes, the ocean does have high currents in certain locations at the bottom. What is it at this date and this time? It's a current. So there's so many variables and unknowns on this thing that, yes, they're doing what they need to do. The Coast Guard is covering everything up top. But, you know, what are the velocities of the currents on the surface? In which case, they'd go, what's downstream? Why bother looking upstream when it's going to be downstream? And I'm sure they took all those into account. I don't know the details of their search plans, but this is not a simple project to find. And I was just going to say that uh, just listening to Dr. Stephen Wood just made my head spin, but you can tell how complex it is. John, back to you. Uh, Tracy Dale says, if the debris is from the sub, the submersible, does that mean they didn't see it coming? Um, let's hope that's not the case. But uh, worst case scenario, was it painless if it is the debris field from this sub submersible? Well, totally painless. Oh, yeah, that. That'll be determined in a safety investigation following that, following a recovery. Um, there's no way to know that until you do a, a full safety investigation following the recovery of the materials. Yeah, but uh, as the doctor was mentioning, as far as the surface goes, yeah, the Coast Guard deploys data marker buoys. We have a complex array of data marker buoys that are deployed. And so as far as the surface current, and that's what I was alluding to earlier, as far as the surface currents go and the drift, um, the Coast Guard's got a handle on that. What they are is they're going to rely on the others to determine the drifts um, based on the blow. But what I didn't catch was because I joined you a little bit late. Was the debris field found on the on the uh, on the on the ocean floor, or was it found on the surface? Uh, from what I can gather, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was on found the floor. on the floor. Uh, uh, say again, Butch. I thought it was found on the floor, but it's found by the robotic ROV. Yes, near the Titanic wreck, it says. Okay, right. so it was it's on, on the ocean floor, floor, not on the surface. Correct. Yeah, yeah okay. it, right. Sorry, but when we discussed earlier the massive debris fields that are there, mm -hmm. and as Dr. Wood described, the growth is going to be on, it, it has to be something that was new, and they won't know that until they get to see it from a camera. So they get eyes on but it. But the yeah, debris, exactly. debris field across that bottom is enormous. You saw that when right. Henry Christoph got some of his first stuff that he presented with. It. Yeah, um, and that's. And that's oh, the hey, same John. theory for the surface as well. Like I said before, typically surface debris is, is spotted from the air, and until mm -hmm. the eyes are on scene, you don't know what it is. It's the same theory on the on the on the on the ocean floor as well. Until right. you have eyes on scene, there's so many things that can cause a debris field that it's just. John, does the debris? I know nothing about this. Uh, we could be talking about. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, you know, astrophysics. I would know less about this. So. Um, how does debris spread on the floor of the ocean as opposed to the surface? Is there something that they're looking for specifically right now? 
Well, my my background is typically on uh, aircraft that have impacted the ocean and then sunk and, and came apart. Um, I'm flying and, over. I'm flying over. I'm flying overseas on Saturday, so try to limit that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. And actually, I'm flying back to myself. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's kind of two different things because for something that that hit, impacts the surface and then falls apart as a debris field coming down, it's going to be much more scattered. Um, yeah. Something that's, you know, 15 minutes from reaching the bottom and has some sort of catastrophic evolution, it, it's going to be much, I would anticipate, unless there's some sort of crazy currents, that it's going to be much more confined. Um, but again, th th these are things that until you get eyes on, it's complete speculation. And until you recover the material, um, if, in, if indeed, if, if it was the, uh, the subject vessel, you're not going to know until you recover that and do a complete metallurgy investigation and, and pick it apart. And that'll, that'll take quite a, quite a long time. I've been involved in aviation accident mishaps and, uh, and it, it, it takes a long time. Jazzy Boop says, is the guy on the top far right from Subbrief? I just watched his video, very informative video. That is in fact, that's the man from Subbrief. That is him. And he's on uh STS. You know why? Because we get the best guests, not only in true crime, but in uh, submersible stories as well. Um, Aaron, to you, uh, authorities are searching this uh, this area. It is twice the size, they say, of Connecticut and two and a half miles deep. Um, give the audience some perspective on what that even means. I mean, and then you magnify the fact that it's in the ocean and, you know, it's dark and murky. Right. Uh, explain that. Yeah, that's that's a huge area to search, and uh, they just need to be very methodical. Like I'm sure that they are uh, going through their search routines. Uh, they they described it as mowing the grass. It's kind of exactly what it looks like, and then you have to go back over the area more than once as well. They have some really good tools, and our um, our Coast Guard guests here would know a lot more about this than I do. But the side scan sonar is going to be key here because that's going to be able to search you know a larger field as they do each one of this. These, these legs of this search pattern that they're doing. I did want to bring up a point about the communication, though, if you don't mind me switching gears here. Not at all. Uh, we do, we uh, do know the acoustic communication that lasted for the hour and 45 minutes. It was not voice. It was telemetry data from a Teledyne acoustic modem giving the topside support vessel, the Polar Prince, I think it was called, um, the position that the that the submersible thought it was in and the current data because it had a um, a UVL on it a velocity logger that the doctor was talking about so they should have the velocities at the time of the dive for an hour and forty five minutes logged somewhere on that ship that's a board vessel so hopefully that helps pinpoint at least where the submersible thought it was and then start there and of course I'd send an ROV to the Titanic right away because that was a very good point that they might have got a little too close to it had a current push them into it and they're stuck there. And that would be a nightmare if, if that's the case. Again, very speculative from my perspective. Uh, anything could have happened. We just don't know. That's what's so sad about this. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't know what we don't know. Um, Butch, to you, um, from your background and experience, would you try to recover a vessel that got lost? Or would you say it is a lost cause and not risk more people's lives uh, to save them? These are obviously very... Uh, uh, dangerous uh, search and rescue missions and then potentially recovery missions. How do you answer that question? Well, first of all, just off the top of the cost risk benefit, we're not putting more people down. This is going to be done with remote vehicles that can be controlled from the surface. We're not putting people down there. 
it, it could take once it's discovered, this could take weeks to actually recover it, release it on um, whether it is trapped, caught or not. It's going to it's not something that's going to be so simple, but we're not going to put more lives in danger for what's already happened. It, you can't work at that level. Right. So the physical operation of bringing them back, it could take weeks the interesting part would be once it's discovered, if the government decided, okay, we know where it is, but we can't recover it. The people who are on board are multi-billionaires. Their families could elect to hire companies to come in, build a piece of equipment that could do this job, and then go and get it done. Can the military, somebody had mentioned that the Coast, doesn't the Coast Guard have equipment to do this? No. It's not sitting in a warehouse in Saginaw Bay waiting to get flown out to the next 12,000-foot rescue. Okay. And with that, I'm going to have to go. I have I have a lineup of things that are ridiculous. I know here. you're a busy man. Busy man. Uh, Thank you Andrew, so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It was great to have you on. What a pleasure to, to listen to you, Dr. Butch. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Butch. Um, John, back to you. Um the Coast Guard here, uh, Frankie Figs, a friend of the show, the U.S. Coast Guard wouldn't have put that statement out lightly. They're going to have a press briefing at 3 p.m., your former Coast Guard. Uh, what do you think is going on sort of behind the scenes uh, right now within the uh, Coast Guard, especially the uh, higher-ranking officers there? Well, it's it's all about confirming data right now. So the the um, the, uh, the, old, the old adage of a, uh, of a dead fish uh, only smells worse the later you wait to, to let it loose. Um, in this case, in the way communications are, uh, both aviation and, 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 and maritime, um, someone reported seeing debris. So the Coast Guard's got to put out the statement reinforcing. They've got a comms issue going. So they, instead of letting the public think for them, or that's a bad word, and let the public guessing amongst themselves, the best thing to do is publish, okay, we found something more to follow and here's a time and it's basic this is a basic um press release type press management type thing as an operational commander yes we found something here's a time that we're going to give you more and that kind of quite frankly pacifies the press um for, for the moment um and and that's as a former public affairs officer that's exactly what you do this is the this is the playbook so to speak um that's exactly what you do and then now so in the meantime what do you do in the meantime, you go back and you start to talk to these operational experts that are that have provided this data or made these reports, and you get as much information as you can. And then you talk and you find out who can go in and find out and put eyes on on scene. And and can you do that between the time that you announce you found something and the time that you're going to give them more information? So if they can, and there's something, there's an asset close by enough to put eyes on the scene, then there will be actually a lot more information at three o'clock. If it's an asset that needs to get into that position of wherever that debris field is, then the follow-up will be just that, where we have an asset that's in route that we're repositioning and we're trying to verify. And uh, so it, it's kind of a standard <coughs> operating playbook as far as pacifying the press, to be honest with you. And, and as a former member of the press, uh, we would be hounding a guy like John Mixon right now, trying to find out what is going on. If you're, you know, a news or media outlet, you want to try to get that information before anyone else. But uh, this is one of those situations when the Coast Guard is going to announce something 
uh, to the media and public at large. It's going to happen at 3 p.m. Eastern time, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from now. Uh, Purple Amaryllis was nice enough to define debris field. She looked it up. Any area non-dependent of locale, space, or contour that contains the debris of wreckage, impact, sinking, or other material that once constituted uh, a complete object, Dr. Wood, that sounds like a test or an exam you would give to one of your students. <laughs> uh, there was another guy with a similar background to you, a marine geophysicist, a guy named Dr. Rob Larder. He was interviewed and he emphasized the incredible difficulty of even finding this sub. Uh, forget about the debris, whatever, just finding the sub alone. It's 22 feet or six and a half meters, uh, nearly nine feet or three meters high. And here's the direct quote. You're talking about totally dark environments in which an object several dozen feet away can be missed. Uh, it's just a needle in a haystack situation unless you've got a precise location. Can you ex expand and expound on this? Uh, well, one thing about it, most of the time we don't use light uh, to search uh, underwater. We use sonar. We use uh, sound. In which case, you can see things very, very well, at, uh, depending on your resolution, which is why exactly we use a side scan sonar. Uh, either you put it on an autonomous underwater vehicle and have a nice little grid pattern, or you tow it behind a ship. But at 13,000 feet, it is very difficult to tow a side scan sonar precisely over the Titanic. Uh, especially when everybody else has their vehicles, their RVs down, and all the ships are in the area. And so you try to put these systems on, like your ROV, in which case you could have your sound imaging systems on your remotely operated vehicle, in which case you can see hundreds of feet away uh, with sound. And so if they have are doing that, then it's a lot easier for them to locate it uh, rather than being a pitch dark, which people always envision you search for your, through your eyes. When actuality for most people, you're searching through sound. As our sound uh, sonar guy we have here, Aaron, now he'll tell you the details on that. But in majority of times, you don't search through uh, cameras until you have located it and you have your, your cameras with plenty of lights to be able to see what's down there. Okay, one thing which I wanted to uh, tell, talk about is, you know, people talk about what happens if it had a hole in it, a small hole, anything. Um, we did uh, small tests with just a film canister with air. Uh, basically, we were doing 3D printing tests to see if we could make uh, uh, pressure chambers uh, using 3D resin printed chambers. And we took those down to 600 feet or basically until um, they imploded. And they imploded with such violence and catastrophe on that second, it was like a bomb going off where everybody in the building uh, stood up and got up trying, trying to figure out what happened. And that was just a film canister size uh, thing. So. Hopefully it wasn't it, but if there was any type of leakage, whatever, it is a catastrophic moment in time. Those guys did not even have time to even realize it was happening. They're instantaneously gone. It is a major explosion if that happened. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it is um, a mechanical. But, but people are asking about did it implode. If it did implode, they felt nothing. It happened instantaneously. Remember the and Dr. Wood, how tiny a hole would it take for that implosion? Micro, um, a micro dot. Yeah, very small. Just very, very small. 
All you need is that one imperfection. You're talking about you're having the, uh, the uh, pressure of a uh, Chevy Suburban on every inch of your body at that location. And so you think about it, every inch has a Chevy Suburban on it. You get one small hole, bang, it's gone. Wow, wow, wow. I, 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 I hope it didn't happen, but if it did, yeah. uh, for those people who are watching, if it did, they felt nothing. They're, they're, they're just gone in a in fraction of an instant. Wow. And, and then there were two. We've got Dr. Wood and Aaron. Uh, John Mixon had to jump off, but this is good because now we can kind of hone in on everything. Um, Kunal is asking um about that banging sound uh aaron you're a sonar man that was the big news uh coming out yesterday what did you make of that banging some people said it may have been morse code uh how did you read it no. okay well one of the reasons why i accepted your invitation was to talk about this specifically i've been by the titanic in a 688 submarine many many times and that part of the world is very noisy with working vessels, not just the marine traffic going left and right, fishing vessels, uh, offshore oil, you know, or support vessels. And you hear banging all the time. And a lot of times it's rhythmic banging that lasts for anywhere from 15 to 30 seconds, sometimes a minute or more. And then it occurs again in 10, 15 minute intervals. That doesn't mean someone's calling for help. It means someone's working on their boat or their oil rig, you know, or doing maintenance. So to, hear a sound and then assume that it's coming from the Titanic is disingenuous. And I didn't see the Coast Guard do that in their defense. It was the news media that did that. And that was egregious in my opinion. The same with this debris field. There's a lot of debris out there as the experts have already said here. I'm not a debris expert, but I agree with them. It would be wrong to go to the Titanic, find debris and say, it must be the Titan. It, the Titanic has a huge debris field. And if, so they just need to take their time, which is what they're doing. The Coast Guard identify the debris that they found and then decide if it's from the Titanic or is it something new? Um, and right so that's, that's kind of, go ahead. You're totally right on that. Uh, joint uh, debris field, which would uh, make it to the surface uh, it would be, and if it did implode, would be small pieces of uh, foam, which would be in the seats and things like that, which is uh, floating up because you would have, if it did have an implosion, it comes up in small itsy bitsy little pieces, in which case the Coast Guard are not going to see it on the surface. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Wood, as of yesterday, uh, late evening, there were five vessels uh, on the surface. Uh, then there are these ROVs. Uh, we talked about the ROVs a little, which I'd like to get back to also. But what are those vessels on the surface doing? What kind of equipment do they have on board? Um, are they combing or do they have a grid mapped out? How does all that work? Um, most of them are just uh, sitting and praying. Uh, the ones who actually have the, uh, inst uh, the instruments, otherwise known as being able to put down current meters, put down your, uh, um, your remotely operated vehicles, but there's only uh, two that can go to that depth. So realistically, most other people, they might try to ping away with their, uh, their uh, depth finders, but they're not going to see anything. If they have a ship with a side scan sonar, and most ships don't, the Coast Guard does not have it, um, typically you have to wait for a research vessel, and they all arrived last night. The ones who have the instruments in the vehicles arrived last night. Uh, and so um, it's, it's, it's a problem to call. Who has so John was saying that the Coast Guard doesn't have the equipment for this. So who comes prepared with this? Who who is arriving? Who are these people? Uh, well, the French uh, they are on a, with their Victor uh, six thousand. 
the other researchers just happened to be out in the ocean and in the area doing science. And you hope that they happen to have those uh, um, re resources like the side scan sonar on board to be able to do a side scan sonar array. I mean, to be able to do that survey at 13,000 uh, foot depth, you have to have the cable to be able to uh, go out to that. And unless you're doing a deep sea uh, survey already, you're not going to have those resources. And to put those resources together, typically would take a month or two uh, for any normal ship. So they're just lucky that there's a uh, crew already out there doing stuff there with the ROV that they have. Thank God for science because they were out there. Um, Aaron, back to you here uh, from Tammy Moncrief. Uh, how can it be entangled in the ship? It takes two and a half hours to get there. They lost contact at an hour and 45 uh, minutes. They weren't at the Titanic. Right. Um, do you have some sort of theory in your mind about what all went wrong here? I do. Yeah. Everyone's focusing on the loss of contact. I did in my research for my video that I just published, uh, they expected to have loss of contact because when they did the solo dive with Mr. Uh, Stockton Rush, uh, did a solo dive in this Titan down below 3,000 feet, they lost communications on that dive. So it's my opinion that they expected to lose communications on this dive, as ridiculous as that sounds. Uh, that is what I believe that they expected to happen because that's what they saw in, in the limited testing that they actually did. So um, just because they lost communication at 145 does not mean that anything happened at that time other than a loss of communication. Uh, the reason why it was lost is because there's two thermal layers at that depth. We don't need to get into the science of that if you don't want to, but it just means that it's, the signal could not get to the surface uh, is really all that that meant. And I believe that the surface vessel, the support vessel, the Polar Prince, with the rest of the Ocean Gate crew on it, were simply waiting for them to come back above shallow enough some eight, ten hours later and reestablish that automated communication. And I want to stress that again, this was not voice communication. This was a computer talking to a computer and that stopped as expected about the time that they expected it. And then they're just gone for the next eight to 10 hours until they come back again. Extremely reckless operation in my opinion. Uh, but that's what appears to be the plan. Yeah. It, it sounds by all accounts that this was reckless and that is uh, probably a, a kind way of putting it. Uh, Dr. Wood, do you see it that way? Do you, do you, let me ask you this question. Would you have ever gotten into the Titan submersible? It's a, it's, it's a hard one to call because this whole area is a risky business. Okay, every sub D you get into is a risky business in, in terms of submersible. Submarines are very much different than a submersible. Submersible, you're only going to be down there for a certain number of hours. So you have this risk versus uh, uh, what's the chances of something happening. Um, now, the thing is, is what makes this one different is the fact that this is a tourist sub, which is very different than a research sub. Um, tourists, uh, you expect to have things more safer than I, as a scientist, as a research would have. I'm, I understand that there are a lot of risks for me to go down to certain depths doing things and uh, I try to ask everything and everybody tries to do everything possible to make things safe. But now you've got it into a tourist situation and you're trying to make money. And in which case people start thinking about what can they do to make money and where are the expenses that they don't need to put in because it has never happened before. So we don't need to put the expense in to make that happen. I mean, just think about your car that you're driving back in the sixties. You didn't have seatbelts. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, I remember my dad back in the 60s putting in our own seatbelts, and that's not that long ago. You have to think about the same thing. Tourism is just beginning on this. This is the first guy uh, we actually have a tourist company going down there. And it's just like going up into space. You have the first tourist going up into space. That is just as dangerous as going down underwater. And we have to put in rules, regulations, standards. So in the future, as we are going into this uh, way of uh, tourism, whether it's space tourism down to deep sea tourism, they have to be more standards and uh, rigorous um, testing of anything that we put down in there. The fact that they had a um, composite part of their hull, composites have problems. They're great, but they also have problems, especially at high pressures. And so they're going to be, a, this thing is going to be studied for years. And what is it that actually went wrong? Titanium has been proven to be fantastic at depth. Was that a problem? Was there an imperfection in the manufacturing of it? Which you don't know. And so uh, there's a lot of stuff which is to be, it's going to come out on this. And it's going to really better the tourism on it. I don't think it's going to stop any of the tourism, but I think it's going to make things a lot safer. Uh, Annie wants to know what is Aaron's YouTube channel? It is called Sub Brief. Check I have to go. Yep. Oh, you have to go, Dr. Wood? Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. So it, it remains just Aaron and myself. Aaron, do you have to <laughs> What am I going to do? <laughs> I oh, appreciate yeah. it. Aaron, I'm curious. Um, by the way, CJ Drake says you could not pay me uh, $250,000 to be in a sub. You couldn't do that to me either, but you, you probably could pay, not necessarily in this submersible. How did you get interested in uh, submarines? And um, what, what's your, uh, I'm curious about your background a little bit. I could never, I would be way too claustrophobic. How are you calm enough to be able to enter a sub? Yeah, uh, I know my family would disagree, but I am typically a, a calm person under extreme stresses. And so that's uh, that's kind of the personality that I have. The more stressful it becomes, the more calmer I get. And that's just, I don't know, that's the way I'm wired. Uh, and that worked out perfectly for being on submarines because uh, it is a high stress environment. But a great question is, how did I get into it? And that goes back to high school. I had a friend of mine who was a math nerd, and I was never very good at math, but he had this book by Tom Clancy in 1984 called uh, Hunt for October. And he let me borrow it. And I read it in like a, you know, a couple of days. It was fantastic. And I was like, I want to do that. And so that was kind of the gateway book, if you will, story, fiction, tale by Mr. Tom Clancy that got the seed started for me wanting to do this for a living. Mm. Um, there is a, uh, a former Navy SEAL. His name is Jeff Eggers. Um, and he was interviewed yesterday. He says uh, that piloting a submersible is like navigating in outer space. You might as well be on the moon. The laws of physics do not care how rich you are. Can you talk about the depths of the ocean, um, how unrelenting it is? Sa uh, Salvatore McCurgliano, who was on here earlier, he said that the ocean is always looking for a way to kill you. But what is it like um, underneath, that far underneath the ocean? Well, it's actually very peaceful and very calm and very quiet. But again, I was on a submarine designed to be quiet, but generally very quiet. And uh, it's it's kind of nice. I mean, my job was to put on headphones every day and listen to a whale song. It was great. I was the most chill person out there. And that's why I kept re-enlisting. I was like, you can't take me off these submarines. I love this. Uh, 
but of course there is a danger. Yes. Uh, and you, uh, you have to recognize that you never, ever not recognize it because that will get you killed. Uh, but you deal with it. We have systems in the U S Navy that are designed and in triplicate that if something fails, something automatically without human intervention kicks in and, and, you know, stops it. Cause like the doctor said, it just takes a micro puncture and you're gone. You know, we certainly did. Give me an example of some of these like, uh, foolproof, uh, fail safe measures uh, i mean for oh, example okay. if there if oxygen starts to become depleted or something the oxygen mass drop down like in an airplane like well, what are some of these things the navy didn't pay for the automated deployment of the oxygen mass but we had to go <laughs> up and grab them they were always above our head there's always more than enough we called them emergency air breathing eabs uh for every crew member and then some there's always a few extra because you always have people on board whether it's from an applied physics lab like a university of texas is very common and other college students you'd be surprised how many college students i took underway with me while i was in the navy it's, it's pretty cool all the all the graduate classes uh, tend to go on submarines it seems um so yeah there's alarms everywhere sensors everywhere that are connected to alarms so that if there's any kind of toxic gas which may apply to today's story uh you would get a you know notification hey you know co2's high oxygen's low whatever it is and then you have equipment on board that you can operate and fix it that equipment a lot of times now is automated but back when i was in we had to actually turn the dials a little bit but yeah, there's uh, there's systems all over the place that monitor the atmosphere and the condition of the submarine in all sorts of ways, including pressure and depth, of course. Uh, and that information is fed to, to humans, the sailors, constantly. And you're always looking at it. There's always somebody awake and on watch looking at that data. And that's uh, it's just part of the life. Wow. Uh, Aaron, do you, I don't want to push my luck, but do you have like maybe 15 more minutes just to take some questions? Sure. Yeah. Whatever you guys oh. want. Awesome. Great. I don't do anything um, anymore. I'm, I'm retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you look, you I drink look, coffee all day is all I do. You look way too young to be retired, Aaron, but you're lucky. Mm. You're a lucky man. Uh, you it's called being it. fat. That's what's called. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever. Um, um, Mr. Meaner asks here, I don't know if you can answer this, but, uh, and this is a morbid question, but one that I guess we have to face as being a possibility. How does it physically feel to die? I know you don't know this firsthand of a slow yeah. deprivation of oxygen how do the body systems slow down and shut off? Do you lose consciousness first? Hopefully it is painless. Do you have any yeah. uh, knowledge? Yeah, about I mean, yeah. Well, whenever we are underway on uh, our normal operating O2 level is, is low. We normally turn the oxygen level down low. So here's uh, two things that I know happen. One, uh, I tend to sleep very good. <laughs> so it really helps with sleep, but that could also be uh, because it's very stressful. And so whenever you get a chance to sleep, it's easy to go to sleep. But having a depleted or low oxygen level uh, helps you sleep. It's not painful at all. But of course, we don't take it down to critical levels like what I think the question's about. Uh, the second thing is, is we brought on a team of psychiatrists on one underway. This is an interesting story. They mounted video cameras everywhere. And that's back when they had the VHS tape and the video camera. They were mounted in the ceiling all over the submarine forward part nothing back in the reactor. Um, and they recorded us for seven days in a low oxygen environment. And after they took it back to their university and brought the results back to the Navy, they said that the, the United States su submarine crews after about 24 to 48 hours begin acting as if they have a low level of intoxication. And this is our normal operating oxygen level, I might add. But if the oxygen level ever did go lower than that, I would infer that those symptoms would just be exacerbated and i'm just kind of guessing here i'm not a doctor uh that we would feel tired a little more intoxicated and sleep very well and if oxygen got low enough obviously not never wake up again well uh there's a question here that i'm not going to put up because i want to get to this one but uh, martin uh curacao asks everybody is talking about oxygen but is carbon monoxide not much more important how do you answer that 
Sure. Yes. Uh, <laughs> carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen are the three deadly gases of, uh, of submarine work. There's other gases as well, but those are the big ones. And so you just want to monitor monitor those levels. And uh, it, it's funny how you know I don't I honestly don't know where the carbon monoxide comes from, but it is generated on board submarines just by the equipment or just human beings walking around. I don't know. Uh, but we're on constantly having to burn that stuff off. We have special, this is what blew me away on board American submarines. We have these large complex machines that take care of those specific, um, what do you call them? Molecules, chemicals, whatever. And, uh, I didn't see anything like that on board this submarine yet. It's rated for 96 hours. And it was in that small capsule. I did not, I don't see how that's even possible. You know, that's why I want to know more about the atmosphere system on the Titan. I don't know if that information will ever be made public, but I think that it was more of a charade than an actual atmosphere system. Yeah. Um, I, I may have already asked you this, so I apologize. My brain is fried. But would you, I, I know I asked Dr. Wood, would you have ever gotten on this submersible, uh, the Titan, and go down? Would you have trusted? I thought about this a lot. And uh, as I learned about the Titan, let's keep in mind a week ago, I didn't know anything about the Titan. Mm. So just what I've learned recently, uh, I would not have let the submarine leave the assembly building, much less go to sea or get in it. Uh, there's a lot of flaws, in my opinion, with the design. It, it is a bare bones, you know, cheap Charlie submarine that you're literally bolting people into a tube and saying, good luck, we'll let you out when you make it back. And that's it. Uh, no, the answer is no. I got weird questions. How do you sleep on a submarine? Uh, you said you're a good sleeper. Um, number yeah. one, I'd be way too nervous. But uh, do you get a normal sized bed? No, you do not. You don't even get your own bed, which is crazy. <laughs> share it with somebody, which is kind of nasty. But hey, you know, we're all friends down there, right? You got you guys uh, change sheets often, I guess. No, um, <laughs> just, a lot of us bring sleeping bags because of that. Yeah, and then the chemicals in the nylon on the sleeping bags were um, illegal, and they said stop doing that, but we did it anyway. Um, so. The, uh, the uh, cots, we call them, or bunks on board submarine are only, I think the, the bedpan is six feet, uh, and I'm a six-foot-tall person, so my head hits the top and my feet at the bottom, but the mattress is this tin, thin little camper-like mattress that you would find in your motorhome, maybe, um, and that's less than six feet. So if you're a tall person, don't go into submarines. You won't be comfortable the whole time. Yeah, and not something we have a, a viewer named Shaquille Oatmeal, who I'm convinced is the real <laughs> Shaq. Clever would, name, I like that guy. <laughs> would, um, question here from the the chief technical officer. Just put this up. What makes this submersible? I know the answer. You're gonna you're gonna laugh when you hear this question. What makes this submersible different than the other submarines you have been on? Other than the fact that the United States government probably does not put a tin can uh, that's you know jerry rigged into the water. But how is it different? Well, uh, let's start with some definitions. You have submarine and you have submersible. The difference there is a submarine has what's called a prime mover. It's a main engine that's usually large and pushes the submarine itself in and out of port. A submersible is something you put on the back of a deep sea vessel like the Polar Prince and tow it or pull it or just you know, ship it out to wherever it's going to be. And the submersible will only have the little maneuvering thrusters. I think this one had four to move it up, down, left, right, and all six axes. Uh, so, but a submarine is a very complex machine and hats off to the naval architects that actually design these things. Cause uh, even though I worked on one for many years, I'm not sure I could actually design one, but I understand how they operate and the systems are very complex and redundant and efficient. Um, it's very high quality. You would be impressed with the quality of our American submarines. It's outstanding. Whenever I look at the Titan, I was shocked. It was like buying a used trailer and then taking it out into the ocean uh, by, by comparison and quality. It's, 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 it's a world apart. Wow. 
Uh, Grant Lloyd, great guest. What do you What do you guys think? Uh, Aaron is the remaining guest here. Uh, space or deep sea safety, uh, or, or deep sea safer? Uh, pray for a positive outcome. Uh, which yeah. is safer, going into space? Do you think, or wow. going to the depths of the ocean? Well, they both have their challenges, and they're very kind of similar in terms of pressures and atmospheres. Um, I would say they're mostly equal, at least with, uh, the submarines, I don't have to go through reentry, which would be very dangerous, I would think. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say space is a little more dangerous than submarines. If you do submarines, right, it's actually not dangerous at all, but you got to do them right. You know, and I'm probably going to receive flack for saying it's not dangerous at all, because of course it is. But I mean, when you have your procedures and the right equipment and everything's maintained and a well-trained crew, that makes it much more uh, feasible, safer. Uh, Love Dreaming uh, says, did the banging sound stop? They did stop. What did you, again, I mean, you're a sonar guy and you're a sound guy. So yep. what did you make of the fact that I, I don't even know the window of time, an hour and a half, two hours, however long they heard this banging for. What did yeah. you make of that, that it came and went like that? My, my first impression was that it was a working boat simply working in the vicinity because these banging sounds can travel for dozens of miles, maybe over 100 miles. Depends on the water conditions. It didn't have to come from the Titan or anything on the bottom. Even it could be the fishing boat a few miles away. We simply don't know. And I don't think the Coast Guard knew either, even though they had people looking at it, which is why they didn't go into detail as to what it sounded like. Um, I, I think they... I think the expert they had on the microphone yesterday did call it banging as an offhanded comment. I'm not sure that's what he meant. Mm. And then they talked not only obviously about uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide, all very big variables and issues, but yep. uh, just for this length of time, they also had very limited food. There's a single toilet, the way they were sitting, they're sitting. Um, there are a lot of, a lot of other problems, not just, the oxygen. Is that correct? That's correct. And you bring up a good point about food and water. Water would be more important than food at this point, And also heat. If they lost power and they're down there, they're right above freezing 34 degrees, maybe inside that thing. Um, and maybe even colder. Oh, and condensation too. This is something that I saw in a cold water environment on board submarines is the inner side, the inside of the submarine would get water and it would build up in the bottom. And so that, if that happened, that could cause a fire too. If they're running cable runs beneath where the people sit, a uh, little bit of speculation on my part, but something no one's talked about and is one of the most common things on board ships and submarines is fire. And there was no fire. I didn't see any fire safety equipment at all in any of the videos or promotional stills that they have on their website. Wow. That would be a, a real problem. Um, Olive, there's so many things that could go wrong. If this submersible touches any ruins, et cetera, it imploded on impact. Is that right? What about uh, pressure issues? Let's say it bumped into something. How, how problematic is that? Yeah, I would hope that, that it's not that fragile. This thing would should be designed to withstand uh, a simple uh, low-speed collision, even at those pressures. You know, uh, the, the fact that it's carbon fiber is a big unknown for me uh, because that may have some kind of property that I'm not used to. I work with steel and titanium, which... Part of the submarine is titanium, but because it's held together by that carbon fiber wrap in the center where the pressure hull is, where the people are, uh, that is a big unknown. So she might be right, the, the viewer. Um, I'd give her credit for that. Uh, I'll just say I don't know. Uh, vintage Mama of Three, uh, describe what an implosion is uh, in the subsense. I think Dr. Wood already said that it would just be catastrophic. Uh, yeah. It'd be instantly um, gone. Um, but uh, Let's talk for a moment about the liability here. Uh, this is the least of the worries, but uh, there will be a lot of criticism levied 
on the founder of OceanGate once this, you know, the, the proverbial dust settles here. Um, but there was an employee named David Lockridge. Uh, he warned, he kind of blew the whistle, uh, Aaron, previously uh, saying that uh, there could be a quote unquote catastrophic outcome. This was, I think, over a couple of years ago, back going to 2018. OceanGate uh, then, because of a non-disclosure, sued this guy. There was a settlement uh, out of uh, court. But um, how how much cl- more closely should people have listened to this guy, David Lockridge, a uh, former employee? Well, I mean, I, I have connections to this business, but on the military side, and I didn't even know about that until this event. So clearly his non-disclosure, even though it was public for a little bit, uh, did not make it out to the mass masses, even people in the business. Uh, so now, of course, we should listen to him. Uh, they should have listened to him at the time, of course. Uh, I'm not sure who he talked to. Did, did he go to the media? Do you know those facts? Uh, I do not know. I do not okay. know. Yeah. I'm not sure who he told, but he didn't tell enough people because uh, he's absolutely right, as we see here today. Um, I know that the billionaire uh, guests, uh, the Daywood family and the other family I forget the name of, are going to have legal teams all over this. They should contact him immediately. And uh, I'm available. I'm not doing anything. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Um, but yeah, you're right. This is going to end in court. Uh, as tragic as it is, that's how these things pan out. And uh, it's interesting you bring that up because there's another guy named Chris Brown who we were actually trying to get on the show. And he is actually a friend of one of the people on board, the billionaire Hamish Harding. Um, He spoke to uh, Good Morning America, ABC News. And here's a direct quote, Aaron. He says, I found out they used old scaffolding uh, poll, old scaffolding poles for the subs ballast. And its controls were based on computer game style controllers. Eventually, I emailed them and said, I'm no longer able to go on this thing. I asked for a refund after being less than convinced. I mean, they're literally using um, joysticks from video games. Um, How crazy is this? Well, that's actually not crazy at all. And this, what, what is crazy is that the joystick was wireless. That's the crazy part. Uh, the game controller, uh, the U.S. Navy uses a similar controller on our submarines and ROV controls. I think the C-130 uh, well, there's one for a, an automated gun system uses a game controller as well. So those are not, but they're military metal game controllers, right? Uh, so that's not shocking as much as it is that it's a Bluetooth connection that you're controlling the control surfaces, the little thrusters with, uh, and presumably other things as well in a cylinder that you're bolted into. And if you lost that Bluetooth connection, how are you going to drive the cylinder back up to the surface for people to let you out? Uh, so the game controller, it should not be as shocking as it is on social media. The fact that it was not wired, hard USB wired to a computer is a lot more shocking. Uh, going back to this ROV, I don't know how much knowledge you have of it, but can you explain sort of uh, how it operates, what it's doing right now, how it knows where to go, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, oh, you're talking about the uh, the Coast Guard ROV. Well, if they're using the Navy curve, which is what I thought was going out there, some the doctor had mentioned a Victor 6000. I'm not familiar with that one. That might be the French one, right? That's the French one, yes. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one at all. But if they use the curve, uh, the curve um, can, is, is tethered, so they just drive it around even though it's you know 13,000 feet away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the Navy sending the curve out there with uh, the FADOS, which is the stability system for hoisting things out of the water at great depths, um, but we'll see what happens when they actually get on site. I don't know. 
The chief technical officer brings up this comment from Tuesday Phillips, the irony of the company being called uh, Ocean Gate. Any thoughts on that, uh, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a little similar to Heaven's Gate, if those remember that tragedy. Yeah. I, I, and it, that's macabre humor. It's not time for yeah. that. May, yeah. Maybe later. Um, Brian H., I subscribed to Subbrief. That was a great video, and I checked out the rest of your channel. Guys, make sure to check out. He has an amazing oh, wow. YouTube channel called Subbrief. Let's support him. Um Thanks, one thing sure. that yeah, one thing that I just can't wrap my head around is that there was no kind of communication um, beacon on this uh, vessel. Why? That seems like such an obvious and easy thing to to take care of. Two things come to mind: weight, because it does have weight, and cost. They were they were doing this on the cheap, cheap, and they got what they paid for. As harsh as that sounds, um, that that's the reality of it. Because uh, that's the only reason, those are the only two reasons why I would say to have it on. And do you know what's funny about this now that I think about it? The carbon fiber, one of the things that makes it great for aviation and spaceflight is that it's very lightweight and strong. Uh, but for submersibles, more we're worried about displacement and buoyancy than weight. Because the buoyancy can compensate for weight. doesn't compensate for mass. That's a different calculation. Uh, so having carbon fiber doesn't give you as much advantage below the surface as it does in the air because of buoyancy. Um, I have probably one of the dumbest questions that I honestly don't know the answer I'm to. I'm really said, good at those. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you've been around the Titanic many times um, yep. in the submarine. Are there like port hole window type things that you look out? How do you see it when you're down there? Okay. So let me first caveat <laughs> that. Our submarines don't go anywhere near the depth the Titanic is. So it's like being in an airplane flying over a city, looking down, going, there it is. Okay. Now, our sonar systems... I can't go into detail on them, uh, but they're, but they're almost like having windows. I could say that, um, uh -huh. you know, but the displays are not like looking at a picture. You're looking at data falling down and then you interpolate that in your mind into a 3d picture. Um, now to say that I ever saw the Titanic is not true. I did not see the Titanic. I've been in the vicinity and listened to the sounds around the Titanic many, many times. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, so there's yeah. one other guy and then we'll start to wrap it up here. Okay. Um, a guy named uh, Arthur Loibel, 60 years old. He's a uh, German citizen, a Bavarian entrepreneur. Um, and he said that uh, he too was, I guess, going to uh, go on this submersible, but he called the voyage a suicide mission, I guess, after learning more about it. Um, he said, I was incredibly lucky back then. Um, it was a suicide mission. Um, he, he had gone on a different submersible I guess it just goes to um, the narrative of this is the very beginning stages, as Dr. Wood said, of this ocean tourism. How do you see this playing out over the next 5, 10, 15, uh, 20 years? I mean, how serious an endeavor is it for people to go and visit the great unknown, which is the uh, depths of the ocean? Right. So in my opinion, tourism is not going to stop. It's going to continue to grow because going down below the waves and exploring things, not just the Titanic, but anything else is really interesting. It's fun to do. It's not something that's very common yet. And, uh, and it is slightly dangerous, like, like, like we talked about, but this moment, this incident, I think will be uh, a, a milestone in change in, in, in terms of regulation. I think uh, reg regulation will come down on this. And if they are registered vessels, which unfortunately this one was not, my as far as I know, uh, they'll they'll have to meet safety standards and inspections, which this one did not do any of those things. They didn't do a, a safety inspection or have any kind of certification from any body whatsoever. So that's definitely going to change. There'll probably be a pause on Titanic tourism for a little bit, I imagine. But 
once registration and, and regulation rather comes on board uh, and submarines are begin to build to those standards, the way airplanes are built, aviation standards, and then and it's a lot more common and safer, we'll see tourism subsea grow again. Uh, just I like to, uh, you know, think about the people on board, hope that they're okay. Stockton Rush, he's the founder and chief executive of Ocean Gate Expeditions. He's taken a lot of heat, even though he could be in a very precarious situation, but let's uh, hope he survives uh, to actually, you know, take that heat better than the other option. Hamish Harding, he is a British businessman, a billionaire uh, who is on board. Then you've got Paul-Henri Norjolais. He is a uh, French maritime expert who is uh, uh, a historian of the Titanic. He is on that vessel as well as a British Pakistani businessman, uh, Shahzada Dawood, uh, 48, and his son, Suleiman, only 19 years old. Uh, so let's keep them in our thoughts and uh, hope that they are okay. Uh, a man who I am grateful uh, to and for is Aaron Amick. He is a 20-year U.S. Navy submarine sonar man. Not a lot of people can say that. Um, <laughs> good line to use in a bar, right, Aaron? Are you it works. All I'm going to say, I'm, I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he retired in 2010 and has worked as a uh, subject uh, matter expert for uh, military project, uh, projects since. I can't read English. Aaron is the <laughs> founder of Subbrief LLC and host of the most important thing here, Subbrief YouTube channel. Check out the Subbrief YouTube channel. Also, subbrief.com. Um, pleasure to have you. The chief technical officer is putting this up. Sky News is reporting a rescue, as expert says, the debris, field, the debris found in the search for Titan was a landing frame and a rear cover. Oh, no. STS has not confirmed this. USCG has not confirmed this. Uh, what does that mean, uh, Aaron, if that is the case? If it's the rear cover, then it was a catastrophic implosion because that's the titanium um, hemispherical rear end of the submarine that was connected to the um, uh, the uh, carbon fiber cylinder. So if it imploded, it pushed that cap off. That's how that happens. Wow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's um, not a great way to end, um, but uh, let's hope those reports are not true. Uh, as a guy who's been in news 25 plus years, I can tell you there are a lot of there's a lot of misreporting and inaccurate reporting uh, when there is breaking news. So let us hope that that's not true. Um, yeah. If it is the case, then uh, uh, it would be a, a very tragic uh, ending. Again, uh, this has not been confirmed, yeah. only being reported by Sky News from a source. United States Coast Guard will have an update today at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Once again, a huge thanks to Aaron Amick of Subbrief. Check out his YouTube channel. Aaron, uh, I hope you'll come back on do a follow-up. Oh, yeah. okay. Anytime you want, man. Just let me know. Where, where, where are you? What state are you located in? Uh, I'm in Michigan, so Eastern Time Zone. Michigan. Love you, America. <laughs> Love you, Michigan. My buddies in the Upper Peninsula right now. Be safe, everyone. Uh, we're back, by the way, tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Back to True Crime. Uh, 150 reasons why Wendy Adelson could be indicted in the Dan Markell murder. Until then, hasta mañana. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, 
Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. <laughs> 